I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We've been in Jonah for a while. If you're a person who likes alliterated chapter headings and titles, chapter 1, we see Jonah as the prodigal prophet running from God. Chapter 2, having been arrested by God, we see Jonah as the praying prophet wrestling with God. Then in chapter 3, having been recommissioned, we see Jonah as the preaching prophet who is serving God. And now we come to a most interesting chapter, not only in the book of Jonah, but in the life of Jonah. Chapter 4, having seen the prodigal prophet, the praying prophet, the preaching prophet, now we see the pouting prophet, where he's angry with God. So this morning we come to begin to open up chapter 4. We're going to consider Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance, and then God's first response to Jonah in the first four verses of chapter 4. But to gain the context, I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse or excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 5. <clears throat> Jonah's been dispatched. He's going through the great city. And he's preaching as we read in verse 4 these words that were given to him by God. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each man may turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, brethren... It might be well, certainly some loose ends wouldn't be tied up, <clears throat> but if the book of Jonah ended at the end of chapter 3, the drama is rather heightened than resolved when we come to chapter 4. We see him in chapter 4 challenging the God of grace. I find the last chapter of Jonah, myself, to be profoundly disturbing, not just or even mostly in what we observe in the prophet, but in what the prophet shows us about ourselves, in our thoughts of God, and our response to the needs of other people. God's goodness to others, especially toward those in whom we may feel uneasiness or even contempt, and the wretched response it may evoke within our hearts is exposed by Jonah's pouting response to God's loving pardon of the penitent Ninevites. Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance also points up the hard-heartedness and self-righteousness of Christians. 
even members in good standing of solid churches. Contempt we may show to those that we deem to be worse people than ourselves. Let's read chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Then the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Well, this morning we're going to Look, first of all, at Jonah's petulant reaction to Nineveh's repentance in the first three verses. And then we're going to look at God's gentle response to the pouting prophet in verse 4. Now, as we look at Jonah's petulant, his peevish response to Nineveh's repentance, Notice three things. First of all, Jonah reacted with unreasonable anger, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You see, Jonah was discontent, and he was angry over Nineveh's repentance, but even more so over God's non-visitation of wrath. He wanted to see fire come down on these Ninevites. Several reason, reasons for his anger have been offered. Calvin expresses the view of many commentators. He believes that Jonah was angry, in his words, because he was unwilling to appear as a vain and lying prophet that he would have been considered a false prophet because God didn't overthrow, but instead he delivered Nineveh from certain promised destruction. But I suggest it does not appear that the prophet was jealous so much for his own reputation, but that he feared that he, feared that he would be regarded as a false prophet since God spared Nineveh. I think this has to be read into the text. I don't think it easily comes out of it. Another similar view holds that Jonah was angry because God's honor was tarnished in not keeping his promise to overthrow the city. Mr. Gill expresses this view. 
He says, the glory of God might be pretended that he would be reckoned a liar and his word a falsehood and be derided as such by atheists and unbelievers. End of quote. Now I suggest that the grateful Ninevites did not dishonor God for not keeping his word, but instead answering their prayer and showing them mercy. And I suggest that other nations might look at God's mercy upon Nineveh and learn to fear Israel's merciful God. This isn't to God's dishonor. This is to God's honor. Another reason suggested for Jonah's anger and displeasure is that Nineveh's repentance would reflect badly upon carnal Israel. See, they were living in wickedness at the time. It would only heighten his countrymen's guilt and increase the fury of Jehovah's coming wrath upon them. He sees these, he sees these pagans repent, and his own people aren't repenting. Therefore, God is going to come with increased fury upon those who are so privileged to receive his word through his prophets. But I don't think there's any indication in God's response to Jonah that this was the root of Jonah's anger. Now, whether these suggested reasons might have somehow influenced Jonah's discontent and anger, we don't know. But this much we do know. His displeasure and his anger over Nineveh's repentance seems clearly to be grounded in his prejudice against these Gentiles especially against the Assyrians, who then posed a threat to Israel. God wiped them out so that this looming threat over us will not materialize. So it was really ethnic pride, in this case Jewish exclusivism, that we are the people only who are to receive God's favors, I believe this lay at the bottom of Jonah's annoyance with Nineveh's repentance. If we could get into Jonah's head, looking through his response to his heart, he might well say, how dare God show these wicked pagans mercy? And he regarded this out of fear and a pride. Let's consider Jonah's fear and his pride that was born of his Jewish exclusivism. Jonah's Jewish exclusivism caused him to be fearful. He feared the brutal Assyrians who threatened Israel's security, and so he nurtured the hope that by destroying Nineveh, God would secure Israel against any Assyrian plan to attack them. But by sparing Nineveh, Jonah thought that God would only embolden the brutal nation. They've been spared. Therefore, they might think that they have, they have a God's smile upon them. Why should they not raise up and come after us? Alexander White may well be right when he writes, Jonah was exceedingly displeased, and he was very angry at the repentance and deliverance of Nineveh, because, like all his people in the house of Israel, he both feared and hated Nineveh with his whole soul. Nineveh, as Jonah knew, was predestined and prepared and prophesied of God to be the fast-coming scourge and the cruel prison house of the conquered and captive Israel, as they later did the northern tribes and threatened the southern tribes, Judah as well. And such was the power and policy of Nineveh, and such was the sin and the weakness of Israel, that Jonah could look for not one atom of hope for his country, unless it was in the great and in insufferable wickedness of Nineveh, and in the swift and sure destruction of God against Nineveh. And thus it was, White goes on to say, that every report that came across the wilderness of the increasing wickedness of Nineveh, Jonah rejoiced in that and took comfort out of that both for himself and his people. They're getting all the more wicked. It's becoming very obvious. They're ripe for destruction and God is going to visit them with wrath. 
And so he smiled at their increasing sin. Jonah's heart beat with the high hope that Nineveh was now so near her destruction. And if only all possibility of her repentance and reformation could be kept back from Nineveh for 40 days, then all might yet be well with Jonah and his foredoomed people. But with such a God as his God was, Jonah had no security. With a God so given to mercy at the first sign of repentance in a sinner, Jonah felt that Israel was not safe till Nineveh was completely destroyed and forever blotted out. I think White reads Jonah's heart well. So Jonah's Jewish exclusivism, how dare God show them mercy, they're not his covenant people, it caused him to be fearful. But secondly, his Jewish exclusivism made him proud. I guess that would be one reason why he was fearful. God, God, you should give only your blessings to us. You see, he viewed all pagans, especially these brutal Assyrians, as beyond the reach of God's covenant favor and therefore utterly unworthy of his saving mercies. Jonah could never conceive that heathens, especially Assyrians, would be numbered with the children of Abraham. He saw them as nothing more than fuel for God's wrath, fit only for destruction. And brethren, this was common Jewish thinking. It wasn't unique in Jonah. It comes to very clear expression in him. The covenant nation, therefore, viewed heathens as dogs, holding them all in contempt. That's why the Syrophoenician woman said, what about the crumbs that fall from the table into the mouths of people like me? Doesn't God have mercy? Doesn't He have kindness to show to me? She wouldn't have thought that if she hadn't seen this Jewish exclusivism, this pride so evident in her Jewish neighbors. The sin of Jewish exclusivism led Jonah to hope that God would not make good on his promise. Or he would make good, excuse me, on his promise to overthrow Nineveh. That there wouldn't even be a drop of mercy for these wicked Assyrians. But Jonah's view of pagans, and especially his hatred of Nineveh in particular, failed to reckon with God's gracious plan for the heathen. God had promised Abraham, remember, that in his seed, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Blessed and not cursed. And though God's special revelation came exclusively to the seed of Abraham, it teaches that God's blessing was to extend beyond the Jewish race into the Gentile world, far and wide. And though the Lord displaced and destroyed nations in order to bring his covenant people into experience the blessing promised to Abraham, it was never God's intention to obliterate the heathen. He instead intended Israel to be a light to the nations. We see this especially in the book of Isaiah chapters 42 and 49 and other places. To exalt his name before their neighbors so that converted heathens would eventually stream into the expanding kingdom of God. So God promised, Psalm 45 and verse 17, I will cause thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give thee thanks forever. And ever. And I don't think these peoples is just the people of Israel. These are the nations. So Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations, writing after Jonah, testified, Jeremiah 4 and verse 2, The nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. Jonah didn't have Jeremiah, but he had Moses. 
you should have known. But that's the blindness of pride. We're the people of God, and therefore the truth will die with us. With such promises to Gentiles, even of nations streaming into Israel, and the blessing of an expanding Israel under the new covenant, Jewish exclusivism infected the spiritual DNA of God's covenant people down into the New Testament and even among the apostles. It tainted the apostles' thinking and it had to be overcome by the teaching of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus spoke of other sheep that would be brought into one fold with one shepherd. He had to show Peter in a vision three times that he must no longer regard Gentiles as unclean. The Apostle Paul speaks of them as fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. So let's rewind. Let's go back to Jonah. God's magnificent mercy toward the repentant Ninevites overthrew Jonah's preconceived notions about God's dealing with the heathens. Indeed, we need to have our thinking checked with the truth. We have certain preconceptions about things that the Bible doesn't teach. He failed to appreciate the long-range prophetic implications of Nineveh's repentance. And because he did, he could take no pleasure in the mercy that God showed to them. Instead, he's still hoping to see the expansion of, of God's kingdom, but not into the, the Gentile world. And therefore, he drooled at the anticipation of Nineveh's overthrow. How dare God show mercy to these people? And when it became clear that God was sparing rather than destroying the penitent city, Jonah responded with anger and displeasure. So we must ask in light of Jonah's discontent with God's mercy to the Ninevites, did he really experience a change when he was inside that fish for three days and three nights as he wrestled with God? Did his testimony of salvation belonging to the Lord simply begin and end with Israel and with himself, with no salvation available from God outside of Israel, especially for these Ninevites? And what motivated his faithful preaching in the great city when he was recommissioned? Did his ministry of warning express a hidden desire that God would make, make good on his promised Overthrow of Nineveh? Was he, as it were, just preaching with glee and delight at the anticipation that fire was going to fall? Well, I think this is quite possible. One thing is clear that Jonah's heart was completely out of sync with God's heart. Even after witnessing clear evidences of Nineveh's turning to God, the hard-hearted prophets still wanted God to destroy them. But lest we pride ourselves as being more spiritual than Jonah, let us think again. Let us view ourselves with judgment day honesty. What about you? What about me? Jonah's contempt for others and his anger at God's kindness to those we may deem unworthy of His saving mercy, rebukes the hard-heartedness of, of many Christians today. Brethren, there is such a thing as Christian exclusivism. It didn't die with the end of the Old Covenant. It may infect our attitude toward non-Christians and other Christians. And we may nurse a proud, demeaning spirit, deeming ourselves superior to other believers even, for various reasons. They're not where we are doctrinally or experientially or whatever. Further, we who confess a relish for God's free grace may unwittingly place limits on the freeness 
of that grace towards certain individuals or people groups. Maybe viewing them, though we wouldn't say it with our mouths, as unsavable and unworthy of God's mercy. They're only fodder for fire. We may be narrow where God is wide and stingy where He is generous. We must be very careful that we're not guilty of holding a contracted view of God's kingdom where we view His work as truly accomplished only by those who hold our distinctives. The kingdom of God is being expanded in the world through faithful servants in various biblical groups beyond our narrow borders. Addressing the all-too-common exclusivism found among evangelical Christians and churches, one writer observes this. At another level, this attitude continues to cling to us today, certainly as individuals, but also sometimes corporately, whether as local fellowships or entire denominations. It may involve a wide range of factors from language through education and social class to color and nationality. For example, it may take the form of an unwillingness on the part of one Christian group to accept another group as genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they believe the same Bible and the same Savior. There may be certain differences of doctrine or of history, there are congregations within the same denomination and in close proximity who never mix because of some incident in the past. Sides were taken and love and reconciliation went out the window. Sometimes even spiritual blessing has become a reason for jealousy and suspicion. For every church that is seeing genuine growth through people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there are several other static or declining groups explaining it away as a result of gimmicks or a watered-down message. Growth does not, of course, prove that a church is sound. No doubt there are sometimes serious problems in growing churches. But neither does decline prove there is a true soundness in the faith. If the Apostle Paul could rejoice when Christ was preached whether from false motives or true, then so can we see Christ preached today and lives changed by His grace. If God Himself rejoices over a sinner saved, then so should we. <clears throat> we may also witness this kind of Christian exclusivism, evangelical exclusivism, in an unbiblical narrowness in the reception of certain members or certain persons into the membership of the church. We may like to think of ourselves as this kind of church or that kind of church, and therefore fail to readily accept believers who are not like us in matters not essential to the Christian faith. This kind of exclusivism would reject God's intended composition of Christians, Christ's churches in which, brethren, unity is wonderfully expressed through, through diversity. Christ intends His new covenant temple to be a beautiful mosaic of living stones, all different, yet all one in mutual love for one another and commitment to Him who is the chief and the cornerstone. Commitment to local traditions, to denominational distinctives, and countless trivial reasons may prevent the fitting of stones Christ intends to be built and to benefit His local temples. We can think they're different. Let them go to that church, you see. They just don't fit in here. So this happens when churches refuse to warmly welcome into their membership Christians who may not fit our particular mold. Brethren, we have the mind of Christ when the 
constitution of our congregations. Strive to reflect the scope of His redemption. Remember, He came to save a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. That means, that's a, that's a motley crew of people from various walks of life, various socioeconomic areas, not all the same. James addressed that problem earlier, did he not? Showing favoritism within the church. But such gospel inclusiveness is not always the aim of Christ's churches. This writer goes on to say, For far too many of us, Christianity is not much more than a wonderful theory that we are not prepared to put into practice when it cuts across our pet prejudices. Wow. But it's true. So we're looking at Jonah's petulant reaction to Nineveh's repentance. First, he reacted with unreasonable anger in verse 1. More briefly, he reacted in verse 2 with pouty prayer. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, this is not, was it, excuse me, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Boy, sometimes our prayers are infected with pride, with discontent. Jonas was. He was a prophet. What is so troubling about Jonah's prayer and so telling is that he, he carries his discontent and anger into his prayer closet. And he's going to tell God his business? Brethren, we know that we're not right with God when we are angry with Him. And when our rage flows from a heart discontented with His kindness to other people. If we are commanded to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension toward men, how much more are we forbidden to pray with hostility toward God? Jonah's pouty prayer really amounts to arrogance and irreverence toward God being himself. I knew that you were this kind of a God, and I was afraid that you were going to do something like this. See, he puts God in the dock. He, he arraigns God for being who he is, a gracious God. How dare you show kindness to these wicked Ninevites? And so Jonah casts God's goodness back into his teeth as if he is guilty of unpardonable sin. This shameless accusation testifies to the sorry state of Jonah's soul at this time. You see, not only was he rankled over Nineveh's repentance, he, ch he charges God with unprincipled mercy. Jonah's bitter prayer leaves us no doubt why he ran from God, why he abandoned what he, feared, what he feared would prove to be a mission of mercy to Nineveh. I knew you were going to do this. I had to get out of here. You see, to Jonah, God's grace was his disgrace and his clemency, his crime. Now, before we go pointing our finger again at Jonah... Let us face ourselves squarely in the mirror of God's word. Let me ask you, have you ever accused God for anything? Have you accused him for being good to others when you feel that he wasn't being good to you? When you haven't gotten your own way? Have you ever thought ill of God for his sovereignty and grace? Have you trampled on his love when he showed kindness to those you deem worthy of his wrath, thinking him evil when he has only done people, other people, you, good? How readily we may defend our arguments against God and even our shameful irreverence before him. 
We find further evidence here that Jonah's wrestling with God inside the great fish had not purged his animosity toward the Ninevites, and now he directs his anger against God. What a merciful God we have, that he hasn't just utterly destroyed us because of our irreverence before him at times. I suggested in an earlier message that Jonah probably preached God's word of judgment without any elaboration, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. I cannot but wonder if he announced Nineveh's impending destruction with a spirit of eager anticipation, preaching with the same petulant spirit that he now prayed before God. I'll tell you, when our hearts aren't right, nothing is sacred. Not our praying, not our preaching, not our thinking, not our responding to the issues of life. If he feels free enough to take this tone with God upon his knees, why not also with those men in the streets? It appears that the good man's revival in the belly of the great fish was short-lived. Did his confession that salvation is from the Lord only apply to himself? Does it only apply to Israel? If he prayed in the Holy Spirit, he would have confessed that he didn't deserve God's mercy any more than these Ninevites. God be merciful to me, the sinner. If God saved him from the belly of a fish, might he not reserve enough mercy to save them from his wrath? Brethren, how easily we may pray irreverent prayers and justify ourselves when we do it. Thirdly, more briefly, he reacted with a foolish death wish. Verse 3, Now therefore, in light of the fact that you were, you were merciful to these wicked Ninevites, I knew you were going to go ahead and do this, and that's why I ran. Now I'm here, and I preached, and they repented. Life ain't worth the living. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. From expressing unreasonable displeasure and anger about Nineveh's repentance, and then from ch charging God with unprincipled kindness, Notice here that the peevish prophet throws a childish tantrum before God. If I can't have my way, if you won't overthrow Nineveh like you promised, I'm going to take my toys and leave. In fact, I don't want to live. Kill me, because life ain't worth the living. But brethren, let me say here that suicide never solves problems. It only creates more serious problems. And if taking one's life is the height of selfishness and cowardice, how dastardly is it to ask it from the hand of God? You do the dirty deed, God. Kill me. But you say, haven't some of God's choice servants pleaded with God to take their lives? Well, yes. When feeling the crushing weight of leading a, a critical and unbelieving people and wrestling with his own sinful thoughts toward them, Moses pleaded with God to kill him rather than to show him the depths of his own depravity. I don't want to see further what I see in my own heart. Lord, kill me before I see the, my own wretchedness. A discouraged Elijah similarly sought God to take his life as he regarded himself a ministerial failure. And since he was marked for death by a wicked Jezebel. Take my life, it's not worth a living. A desire for God to take one's life during times of severe doubt and discouragement, it may be understandable, but dear people, it's never excusable. He who ends his life will never be happy in the afterlife. 
Let us note that Jonah's death wish arose not from a sense of ministerial failure, rightly understood, or from conviction of sin. His death wish grew out of unwanted success. He preached, they repented, but he preached, he wanted them to die. Contrast the imprisoned Apostle Paul. He would have exchanged his life for the salvation of his unbelieving countrymen. He for whom Christ was life believed that death was gain, thought it better to remain alive for the blessing of Christ's church. Brethren, God has saved us to serve him until he has finished his work through us, and then he calls us home. We're not free to take the next bus to heaven on our own. And I dare say if we think that way, we might be, might be surprised at what we find. So that's Jonah's petulant reaction to Nineveh's repentance. Notice very briefly then, because we're going to come back to God in his response in the last verses of Jonah. God's gentle response to the pouting prophet, verse 4. After this tirade, after this hissy fit that Jonah throws, God's listening the whole time and not saying anything. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? You see, Jonah comes to the Lord with guns blazing. His mouth spewing accusations against God for his mercy. He approaches the Lord like the elder brother in Jesus' parable, his father, erupting in wrath rather than in joy at the astonishing display of God's salvation. And yet how gently does the Lord, like the loving father toward the peevish elder brother, answer his petulant prophet? He doesn't slam Jonah for his criminal irreverence. He offers no stern word of condemnation for the prophet's hatred of the Ninevites in his hard-hearted response to their repentance. Instead, he asks Jonah a probing question that goes straight to the heart of his anger and discontent. Do you have good reason to be angry? So the Lord asks Jonah to justify his rage and discontent. Assumed in God's question is that not all anger is necessarily wrong. Do you have good reason to be angry? Anger at times, in fact, may be right. It is right when its cause is righteous. Its intensity restrained and its duration reasonable. But Jonah's anger failed on all three points. Its cause was unrighteous. It was at the goodness of God. It were the repentance of a wicked people. Its intensity unrestrained. He came at God tooth and nail. With everything that he had. And it continued unabated. He was still hotter than a $2 pistol. The Lord sought by his gentle answer to diffuse Jonah's unrighteous wrath because in his case, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. God's question kindly reproves Jonah for pouting when he should have been praising Hard thoughts of God filled the prophet's heart when he should have been lifted up in adoration for God's mercy to such an undeserving people and such an undeserving person. Hadn't God saved Jonah from certain death in the belly of the fish? 
Hadn't he graciously recommissioned him and put a word in his mouth? Hadn't God shown kindness to that unworthy, undeserving, hell-deserving people? Couldn't he see himself in God's kindness to them? And yet he pouted over Nineveh's repentance, accused God for being gracious, and asked the Lord to kill him. Well, I close with a couple of concluding observations. First of all, behold the evil effects of unreasonable anger. Maybe some of you struggle with a short fuse. You easily rear back on your hind legs and are ready to go to blows if somebody crosses you. Maybe you're not angry about the right things. And maybe your anger is like a slow burning fuse, like a lightning strike out in a bog in West, in, in Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It just simmered for days and then it broke out into a fire they're still trying to contain. Brethren, when we are filled with unreasonable anger, we forsake rational thinking. We don't think rightly about God. We don't think rightly about others. We don't think rightly about ourselves. We don't think rightly about sin. When we are filled with unreasonable anger, we relinquish control over our emotions. They just go out the door. We let fly. Our feelings may run riot and run roughshod over other people. Well, my anger is just short. It doesn't last long. Well, neither does a hand grenade or an atom bomb. But consider the destruction that it does. We lose control over our emotions. We should be glad when we're sad. We should be rejoicing when we're pouting. Brethren, this is a hard message to preach because in his preparation and his preaching, I see that my middle name is Jonah. And when we're filled with unreasonable anger, we make foolish decisions. We decide to do wicked things that we may, if we do them, later regret or we fail to do what we know is right? Proverbs 14, verse 29, He who is slow to anger has great understanding. And who is the one slowest to anger? It's God himself. He who is slow to anger, Jonah confessed him so to me. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered, Jonah, exalts folly. A godly person knows that he can't love those against whom he is unreasonably angry. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Jonah had no love for those Ninevites. Only wrath. He didn't say, you know what? I can go up and I can hug some of these men I used to be afraid of, I was angry toward, wish they were dead, and I can embrace them as brothers. What but the grace of God could do that? We see that on mission fields around the world, especially with Christians toward hostile people. Secondly, finally, behold God's grace and gentleness toward his unreasonable people. Do you have good reason to be angry? Is that not how God deals with us? Jonah's history is our history, is it not? We fly off the cuff, we say things that we later regret things that we don't even like to remember. 
And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Brethren, if the Lord treated us as we often treat him and gives us what we don't deserve for our irreverence, but rather shows us kindness. Brethren, if he gave us what we deserved, he would have destroyed us a long time ago. We've broken all the commandments with our tongue, not with our hands. Ah, but he graciously bears with us. If he didn't, we wouldn't be here. John Newton writes, Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us though we treat him thus. Though for good we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. Does not the Lord show us amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree? Is that your testimony? Well, may we strive by his grace to increase in our love toward him who first loved us and who never ceases to love us. And may that love spill out into our lives toward other people. Let's pray. Our Father, it is as if Nathan has come, but a greater than Nathan, even the Holy Spirit, who brings conviction to our souls, has pointed his finger into our chest, if we're honest with ourselves, and says, Thou art the man. And let us not turn away from what we have seen. We are to go to the mirror of the Scriptures and see what manner of men and women we are and not to turn away and, and forget that kind of person but rather seek the grace of God through the engrafted word which is able to save our souls and so our Father we, we pray that you would take this word this morning you would make application to every one of our hearts that we would go away even as we've already prayed different than we came more conformed to the image of our Savior who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Might we show our family resemblance and become more like the one who loved us and gave himself for us. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.